0: This is episode number 134 of the Individual One podcast.
1: For the record, Individual Number One is President Donald J. Trump.
0: And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else... Is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Well, it's official, at least about as official as it gets. Joe Biden will, in fact, be the next president of the United States. Correct. Uh, yesterday, the Electoral College. Uh, finally decided officially uh, that uh, he would win 306 Electoral College votes, which is exactly what I predicted in my final prediction. Uh, not the one that I made uh, several days prior to the election here on the podcast, but the one that I made in my column for Mediate. So I nailed the exact number of Electoral College votes. I was off by two states, uh, barely, I, with the regard to uh, Georgia and Arizona. But uh, the reality was that the numbers ended up exactly as I predicted. And in fact, the popular vote looks like it's going to be effectively exactly what I predicted, which was 51 percent to Biden, 46 percent for Donald Trump. Technically, the and the Trump people, the Trump fans, the last of the Mohicans, like the uh, the Japanese, still uh, hiding uh, many many years after World War II, thinking that the war was still going on, uh, they think that somehow January sixth is going to be the big day uh, when uh, the Congress finally officially declares that Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. <laughs> No, no, that's that's a fait accompli. But don't tell the Trump fans that uh, because they they believe in their religion. But uh, that will deal with that in the the next episode of the podcast, which will be uh, right when that happens, right at the beginning of the next year. We're going to take the next two weeks off uh, because of the holidays. And that's partially why later in this uh, episode of the podcast, we're going to be doing a year end since this is our last episode of the year, a year end. Ask John anything segment. I actually anticipate that that will go on for at least a couple of episodes because we got so bombarded uh, with your questions, many of which are very, very good and look forward to answering them. Before we do that, though, I do want to go through a little bit more of the news that has transpired since our last episode of the Individual One podcast. Yes, uh, Joe Biden was the, declared the winner of the, in the Electoral College this week. Uh, and uh, interestingly, Mitch McConnell has acknowledged that uh, Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. Correct. He, of course, is the Senate majority leader. He may or may not be the Senate majority leader in the next Congress. Uh, He's the person that you should look to for real guidance on the political wins here because he is desperate to make sure that Republicans win at least one and ideally two of those key runoff elections in Georgia the day before, which will be January 5th, 2021, the day before Congress determines... For officially, uh, for all official purposes, that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States, Georgia will be voting, and have their final votes counted. At least that's when this voting will start counting on January 5th, the evening of January 5th in Georgia. And Mitch McConnell uh, is going to be the someone who is going to be needing to bridge a lot of gaps. Uh, he's he's going to have to bridge a lot of divides. He's going to have to make sure that he doesn't uh, piss off anybody to a a huge degree, at least not people in Georgia, because he knows the fate of his uh, position as the Senate majority leader, as well as maybe the fate of the country, rides on how those Georgia runoffs are going to go. I'll have a few thoughts on the state of that momentarily. But first, I got to play some clips from an interview that Donald Trump did. And it's really rather remarkable and telling uh, that Donald Trump after the election, has really done so few interviews, specifically with Fox News Channel, which used to be his favorite network, and now he disparages on an increasing and daily basis. But he did do an interview with Fox News Channel at the Army-Navy game on Saturday. Now, the Army-Navy game actually did happen. It did not happen as planned in Philadelphia, which is its traditional place. It happened at West Point because that way they only had to move the midshipmen from the Naval Academy up to West Point, since obviously the cadets of Army were already there. No one else was allowed at the game other than the two corps, except for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did appear at the game and had a very, very warm uh, reception. I think anybody whose objective would say that that was a very warm reception, What that means, I don't know. Obviously, as a Republican president, generally the military has been very supportive of a Republican president, and Trump has talked a big game about being very pro-military, probably a game that's not really based much in truth, but he plays that game very well, and it should be noted that the reception to him was exceedingly warm. Well, at the game, he was interviewed by Brian Kilmeade. Now, Brian Kilmeade is a co-host of Donald Trump's formerly favorite show, which is Fox and Friends, the morning show on Fox News Channel. Brian Kilmeade is um, kind of a sports guy. I guess that's why they sent him to the Army-Navy game to interview Trump. He's also a moron. Uh, I I have uh, been on a panel with Brian Kilmeade for talk radio a few years ago, and he's a very nice guy. Very nice, but like a lot of very nice people, very stupid. He is a very I mean, Saturday Night Live has actually mocked him for his stupidity. And, and and I think one of the very rare situations where it's warranted, he is a dumb guy. Weirdly, he sometimes, like a lot of dumb people, says some things that are actually dead on because he can figure out the two plus two equals four. Don't ask him what two plus three equals. But two plus four, two equals four in the Brian Kilmeade world. And so Trump has now done his two most prominent interviews post-election with Maria Bartiroma, who is also a moron and, and frankly, a cult member now, and Brian Kilmeade. And in a rational world, Donald Trump said some absolutely bizarre and very disturbing things uh, about what's going on with regard to the presidential election, and uh, and what we're, whether or not Joe Biden is a legitimate uh, president, if he's going to be the president of the United States, he also ripped into Bill Barr, which was foreshadowing for what happens with Bill Barr just a few days later, when Bill Barr ends up "quote unquote" resigning as Attorney General from the United States. And I realize we're all desensitized. To the insanity of Donald Trump. Correct. Uh, but this still is worthy of, of mention and and worthy of contemplation because it's just so remarkable where we are. It's just bizarre. We're better than that. No, no, we're, we're not. We're clearly not. And it's it's amazing that America is not tearing apart the scenes, at least not overtly right now, based upon some of the things that the so-called president of the United States is saying here is. Trump at the Army-Navy game with Brian Kilmeade just point blank saying that uh, his great concern out of this is that America is going to have an illegitimate president because Biden is going to be declared the winner of of an election that he believes was rigged. And here's what that uh, lunacy sounded like.
1: When you look at this fight, though, you have 77 percent of Trump supporters who believe you won the election, according to a a Fox poll. I've I've heard actually much higher numbers There's a a rally right now in Washington for that. Do you worry about the country being divided as if it goes to inauguration and they still feel that way, and you still feel that way? No, I worry about the country having an illegitimate president. That's what I worry about. A president that lost, and lost badly. This wasn't like a close election. Uh, You look at Georgia. We won Georgia big. We won Pennsylvania big. Uh, we won Wisconsin big we won it big but you're going all of these states but do you think your legal team has proven that well we don't we never get a chance to prove it because a judge will say well I'm sorry you don't have standing like how about me Texas and all of these states uh, 18 or 19 altogether they come in think how nice that is where they actually come in And they say, we want to support you, sir, because you're important to this country. We want to support you. They go in and they say the states don't have standing and I don't have. I'm president of the United States. I just got 75 million votes. The biggest number of votes in the history of our country ever gotten by a sitting president.
0: And you lost. You lost big time. And you're claiming that the next president is illegitimate. Why? Because some of their votes got counted after midnight on election night?
1: You cannot be serious.
0: That appears to be, in all seriousness, that appears to be the essence of Donald Trump's quote unquote argument. That in his little mind, because in other points in this interview, he talks about how, you know, they they even stop supposedly, this is not true, uh, supposedly stop taking bets on the presidential election, because the bookies de- determined that President Trump had been reelected and look at all the numbers on election night. He was winning big in all these states. And then all of a sudden the next morning he was losing Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, because all these votes came pouring in all for Biden under nefarious and mysterious circumstances. That, that's just it's just it's just flat out ridiculous. That's that's not the way this works, as we've said uh, many, many times in this podcast. The reality is those were mail-in votes, which were counted last, and they went overwhelmingly for Biden because Biden's voters were afraid to go to the polls because they have bought in to the COVID religion, which tells them, don't go out of your house. And so, therefore, they were the ones who were far more likely to vote via mail-in balloting. Correct. This is not difficult to understand. And it's not difficult to understand why those votes were counted last and why they went in massive numbers for Joe Biden. That does not make Joe Biden an illegitimate president unless you consider mail-in voting to be illegitimate. Now, I don't like mail-in voting. I hate it. I actually believe that we make voting way too easy in this country. I think it ought to be an obstacle course. I, I think it ought to be as difficult as possible. It, it, you should, you know, <clears throat> it should be basically like an Easter egg hunt, trying trying to find where you're supposed to vote. I mean, I I hate mail in voting. I think it is dangerous and not because of the inherent possibility of fraud, but because I just don't think it should be that easy to vote. But those were the rules. Those were the rules. It was perfectly legal to vote via mail-in balloting. And so unless you're going to de- disenfranchise millions of millions of people under no logical basis, no legal basis, which is why no court, including the Supreme Court, will even hear this. Now, the Supreme Court knocked down the, the Texas lawsuit because the Texas lawsuit actually had nothing to do with, with uh, fraud in the election. It had basically to do with protecting the the concept of equal protection for all voters and that uh, every state has different rules and that this somehow uh, disadvantaged those voters in Trump states. I'm paraphrasing here. That's an interesting argument. If it was granted as legitimate, it would make it impossible— for America to run an election in the future absolutely impossible you could say that about virtually every election we've ever had and let's be clear this election turned out to not even be that close correct the, the I mean first of all it's, it's beyond absurd to think that Trump won in a landslide he actually got his ass kicked it was not that close he lost by seven million votes in the popular vote he, he lost by the same margin in the Electoral College that he claimed wrongly in 2016 was a massive blowout, the exact same margin in 2020 as it was in 2016, just in reverse. He he lost states that not only did he win in 2016, but that are controlled by Republicans, specifically Georgia and Arizona. And that, to me, is where he, Any logical, semi-logical argument on behalf of Trump having this election stolen from him goes out the window. You you cannot explain Georgia and Arizona. You can't can't explain a lot of things, but you really cannot explain Georgia and Arizona. States he won in 2016 where uh, there is is a Republican governor, Republican secretary of state, and somehow Democrats, quote-unquote, stole the election. It just did not happen. It's absurd. And of course, it's not just that Trump can't rely on Georgia and and Arizona to have his back, that they're going along with this rigged election. His own Supreme Court, which now has six, quote unquote, conservatives, really only five because John Roberts is out to lunch now, has flipped for some reason. But three of those five conservatives are people he appointed to the Supreme Court and yet they haven't lifted a finger on this, and rightfully so. And what's uh, Trump's explanation for that? Well, uh, here's what he told uh, Brian Kelmead.
1: No judge has had the courage, including the Supreme Court. I am so disappointed in them. No judge, including the Supreme Court of the United right. States, has had the courage to allow it to be heard. The Supreme Court, all they did is say, we don't have standing. So they're saying essentially that the president of the United States and Texas and these other states, great states, they don't have standing. They didn't go into the evidence. If you would look at the evidence, thousands of pages of evidence, we have over a thousand affidavits from people that saw tens of thousands of ballots. Gotcha. No, but here's the point. They're, try- they're winning these things on little technicalities, like a thing called standing. They're saying the president of the United States does not have standing. Right. So that's what was decided last night. So would you show up at the inauguration? Will you? Well, uh, I don't would- want to talk about that.
0: I don't want to talk about that. He doesn't want to talk about whether or not he's going to show up at the inauguration of Joe Biden.
1: You cannot be serious. I don't know
0: if he's going to show up or not. Uh, it would not shock me. If he does not show up, uh, who knows? I, I mean, I, you know, he wants it to be all about him. I can see a scenario where if he decided that uh, he was going to get good press from it, that maybe he does show up. Uh, and then, you know, who knows what he does when he is there? If I'm Biden, I don't think I want him there. I just wouldn't trust him in any any way, shape or form. But it would be uh, unprecedented. And I, I believe a very dark day in this country's history uh, a country that has been known for peaceful transitions of power, to not have the current president there at the inauguration of the new president. But that's, that's reason number 101, if not more than that, why it was always dangerous to allow Donald Trump to be president of the United States, because he does not give a crap about the country or about our traditions or about the sanctity of our institutions. He only cares about himself, his own ego and what's in his own self-interest, whether that be from a reputation standpoint or from a monetary perspective moving forward. That is an absolute 100 percent fact. Correct. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it play out in just absolutely disgusting fashion that is going to have ramifications for many years to come. Now, it's not just the Supreme Court that has let Donald Trump down because they're apparently part of this deep state conspiracy to rig an election and cause a coup d'etat against a, a sitting elected president who supposedly won. In a lands- I mean, this is just fantasy stuff. I can't even believe I'm saying it. It's not just the Supreme Court. It's also Bill Barr. Now, let's remember who Bill Barr is current attorney general of the United States, the guy who has done Donald Trump's bidding at nearly every turn, the guy who went way out of his way, and I called it before anyone else did on this podcast, to sabotage, sabotage Robert Mueller's investigation into potential Russian meddling in the 2016 election.
1: Uh, I'm not going to get into that.
0: He did it in a nefarious and overt way. He did it very, very effectively. It was a lie. Uh, and And it got Donald Trump out of being impeached when he should have been impeached over the findings of the Mueller report. That was all Bill Barr. And yet Bill Barr is not willing to go to the mat or even get to the mat on behalf of Donald Trump when it comes to an entire election, an entire election being rigged against his president. So he's willing to go to the mat To protect that president against a legitimate investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. But when it comes to the actual 2020 election being rigged and there being a coup d'etat, Barr, for some reason, has no interest. Has no interest at all in the topic. And, uh, you know, a cursory investigation, but nothing dramatic from him at all. And not only that, but according to Donald Trump, Bill Barr. It was part of the deep state conspiracy, apparently, because he didn't correct Joe Biden when Joe Biden claimed the debate that the Hunter Biden situation was a big nothing, that there's no investigation of him. When we now learn that there is some sort of federal investigation into Hunter Biden, it seems all nebulous and contrived to me. But okay, fine. Let's find let's see what they find out. But here is Donald Trump expressing before just a couple days before Bill Barr resigned suddenly that he is very disappointed in Bill Barr's handling of the Hunter Biden situation.
1: The Hunter Biden this week has confirmed two investigations on him, one on Jim Biden. You see, the word is you're disappointed that William Barr knew about this in the spring. Well, everybody is, who isn't disappointed? Right. Joe Biden lied on the debate stage. He said there's nothing happening, nothing happening and Bill Barr should have stepped up. I'll tell you what, say what you want about Robert Mueller. When Buzzfeed put out a phony article, I think it was Buzzfeed, but Buzzfeed put out a phony article. Bob Mueller stepped out and he said that article was a phony, and then it was ultimately proven no collusion, no after two years no collusion. But Bob Mueller stood up and he he interjected that this article was false. Bill Barr should have done the same thing. Jonathan Turley said that uh, he had no choice, that he, he would have been like it would have been like uh, James Comey again. All he had to do is say an investigation's going on. And by the way, I don't want to see anything bad happen to Hunter Biden. Whatever it is, it is the facts. But I don't want to see anything bad happen to Hunter Biden. And I purposely stay out of it. But when you affect an election, Bill Barr, frankly, did the wrong thing. When they are saying things, making statements, and the press is purposely not reporting it, Bill Barr, I believe, not believe, I know, had an obligation to set the record straight, just like Robert Mueller set the record straight. You know, he said it straight. A very bad thing was said, and it was a false article, a false statement, which you know, usually they are with the with the media, but this was a false statement. And Robert Mueller stood up and he said that is a false statement, and that was a great thing. I've got to go.
0: <laughs> um, let's. There's a lot to correct there. Uh, First of all, you may recall, if you're a fan of this podcast, what Trump is alluding to there uh, with regard to Robert Mueller supposedly correcting a false report. I don't believe that that's to this day what happened. We've interviewed Ben Smith. The guy who runs or used to run BuzzFeed at the time and who was the person who's he didn't write the story, but he approved and edited the story. And the story was basically that Robert Mueller had evidence that Michael Cohen had been coerced uh, and had had his his perjury uh, suborned by Trump and or his lawyers regarding the issue of the Trump Moscow project that was still going on while Donald Trump was the presumptive Republican nominee in 2016. This to me is a huge issue. We've covered it constantly on this podcast. It's the smoking gun of what the whole Russian investigation was really all about. Trump was trying to use his run for president as leverage to get Putin to approve a massive Trump Tower in Moscow. And then Trump won the nomination, and now they needed to cover it up. And as part of covering that up, because in a rational world that would look really, really bad and blow apart a lot of the narratives that Trump himself had tried to create, Michael Cohen lied to Congress about the timing of that. He said it was over in January of 2016. That's what he told Congress. Part of the reason why Michael Cohen went to jail was because he lied to Congress. Why did he lie to Congress? BuzzFeed, and I still to this day, having spoken to Ben, both on the record and not the record, I'm still not 100% sure what happened here. But the idea that somehow the BuzzFeed story was totally false is a joke. It's not now, why Robert Mueller chose that moment to step in, I'm not sure. My my surmise is, the irony is that the BuzzFeed story was not corrected because it was wrong. It was corrected, quote unquote, because there was actually truth to it and that there was a huge battle within the Mueller probe as to what to do about that. This is me, this is me, putting all the pieces together here. Oftentimes, reality is 180 degrees from the way that it is perceived. And there were so many false reports that the Mueller team never bothered to correct. Why did they choose this particular one? I believe that the most logical scenario here is that there was a battle within the Mueller probe because, because in my view, this was the impeachable offense the suborning of Michael Cohen's perjury over the Trump Tower project. When you look back at Bill Clinton's impeachment, this is far worse, far worse than the obstruction of justice for which Bill Clinton was, in fact, impeached and then later acquitted by the Senate. So if I'm in the Mueller probe, uh, I am, there's got to be people in there who are screaming, this is it, this is what we've got, this is the key to the whole thing. But Mueller clearly decided he didn't have the balls to do that, that he he just didn't want to go there uh, for whatever reason. He lost his guts. And so therefore, in order, you remember, put yourself in Mueller's position here. If you're in Mueller's position and you have a disagreement on your team and BuzzFeed comes out with this story, which is going to create an enormous amount of fire on the side that you're against. That would cause you to actually do something unprecedented—to come out publicly and tamp it down. And by the way, he tamped it down in a very odd and uh, and uh, vague way. Uh, that, to my thinking, and to Ben Smith's thinking, did not did not directly contradict the essence of the story. To me, what it said was, "We don't have enough proof." That's what really what what Mueller hung his hat on. We don't have enough proof to prove that the the perjury of Michael Cohen was suborned by Trump and or his lawyers. And that was the difference. BuzzFeed felt as if there was enough proof and Mueller said, no, there's not enough proof. And I believe Mueller did that because he was covering his own cowardice. That's the most logical scenario here. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But the reality is that the, the analogy doesn't even hold. The analogy does not hold between the Hunter Biden situation and what Mueller did for many reasons. Now, Kilmeade, to his credit, even though he's a moron, I told you sometimes he gets it right by accident, he did make the proper analogy, which was the James Comey analogy. And the James Comey legacy of 10 days before the 2016 election coming out and announcing that there's an investigation uh, in, into Hillary Clinton's emails again, which was a massive mistake. Not just because he stepped into the political arena 10 days before the election, but because it wasn't real. It was all based on bullshit. It was based upon some new emails they found that had nothing to do with anything, dealing with Anthony Weiner's laptop. And they found that out just before the election, put out another statement which didn't make nearly as much impact. And it absolutely, in my view, and the view of many other people who who are into the data, had a massive impact, maybe a deciding impact, on who won the 2016 election. But here's the depth: There's a massive difference. One, the Hunter Biden situation is not taken nearly as seriously for whatever reason as the Hillary email situation. Partially because we don't know enough about the Hunter Biden situation right now, and also because it's not about Joe Biden. It's about Hunter Biden. At least the Hillary situation was about Hillary. But more importantly than that, Bill Barr in 2020 is not James Comey in 2016. James Comey in 2016 had credibility. He had gravitas. And when he came out, There were a lot of people who took that very seriously, including the news media. The news media took that exceedingly seriously. In fact, I believe too seriously, given what ended up happening. Bill Barr in 2020 coming out and correcting Joe Biden after the debate and saying, actually, we are investigating Hunter Biden, would have made a lot of news on the right. But it would have been muted and diminished by the mainstream news media And most voters would not have taken Bill Barr that seriously. Why? Because Bill Barr was seen as a partisan hack, largely because of how he handled the Mueller probe. So this idea that somehow Bill Barr would have turned the election against Joe Biden if he had given more credibility to the Hunter Biden allegations is just... It's just flat out ridiculous. It's just not true. It did not happen that way. So that's... Donald Trump at the Army Navy game. You know, I'm more focused right now on the Georgia runoffs and as batshit crazy as all of this has been. And again, I use always use the word desensitization. We have been so desensitized just yesterday. I believe it was yesterday. Donald Trump retweeted a tweet from Lynn Wood. Now, Lynn Wood is an interesting guy. Linwood Wood is a guy who I used to consider a friend. I've interviewed him before. I've had long conversations with him uh, off the air about other matters. He's a lawyer in uh, the Atlanta area who has been involved in some very interesting cases. Uh, I've written about Lin. I, I had a lot of respect for Lin. I know that Lynn, at the beginning of the Trump administration, was not all in on Donald Trump. He was very skeptical of Donald Trump. I kept waiting for Lynn—in fact, we, for a while, on a uh, direct message on Twitter, we would—I uh, would go back and forth with him saying, you know, I was basically expecting him to be one of the first people to realize that Trump was a fraud and a con man and to no longer support him. Now, clearly— <laughs> was dead wrong about that because the exact opposite happened. Uh, uh, You know, once Lynn decided he he figured out a way to make money off of the Trump presidency, uh, Lynn was all in now. And he's so all in that uh, he's going around uh, with regard to the Georgia runoff, basically saying that even the the Republican senators aren't pro-Trump enough to deserve Republican votes. And he tweeted out that he believes that the Republican governor of Georgia and the Republican secretary of state of Georgia should go to jail and will go to jail for what? I don't know. But effectively, I guess, accusing them of being part of a plot to sabotage Donald Trump's reelection efforts by not protecting Donald Trump's uh, chances in Georgia. Now, I don't know what the hell they were supposed to do. I don't know what their crime was, but that's what Lynn Wood tweeted. Now, that's batshit crazy, even for a lawyer who's taken very seriously in some quarters, especially on the right wing now. But then the president of the United States retweeted that tweet, urging the governor and the secretary of state of Georgia to be put in jail. You
1: cannot be serious.
0: The president of the United States shared that tweet to his 85 million, whatever it is, followers without comment, effectively endorsing this idea that the Georgia governor, a Republican, who, by the way, Trump threw under the bus when he opened up his state before any other other state opened up and was wrong about. I mean, it's just you cannot make this shit up. And it cannot be helpful to the cause, which is to make sure Democrats do not control the Senate so that effectively they can do whatever the hell they want once Joe Biden becomes president in late January. And as far as the impact of this, I don't know. I mean, I don't live in Georgia. I don't know very many people in Georgia. All I can do is, you know, go from what I see online and in the polls. The polls are very, very, very tight right now in both runoffs. It's basically going to be a coin flip. It's going to be a coin flip in either direction. You know, I I said in the last episode that from a karmic perspective, I just can't believe the Republican Party is going to escape four years of Trump without paying the full price. It has very little to do with what, you know, is going to happen on the ground in Georgia. But it just seems amazing to me that, uh, you know, we could get out of this with, you know, an old Joe Biden as president, Nancy Pelosi having a very thin margin in the House and Mitch McConnell still controlling the Senate. I mean, that would that would be uh, the best possible scenario, at least in the short run, for surviving the Trump presidency. And uh, and and my gut tells me that's probably not going to happen. Since this is the last episode we're going to do before those votes start getting counted. My first prediction is by the next time we talk in the first episode in January, we're still not going to know for sure who won those runoffs because they're going to be that close. That's my first prediction. My second prediction is uh, that uh, you know we're we're probably going because we can't get out of this insanity easily. There's going to be massive controversy over who ends up winning uh, those runoffs, almost no matter what the results are, because they're going to be close enough for either side to claim. Especially now that Trump has. Trump has dropped the threshold for claiming a rigged election to basically nothing. Basically, if you don't like the result, the election was rigged. And so this is going to be uh, in my view a crap show. And uh, if you gave me one of those two to go to the Republican side right now, I would take it in a heartbeat. I'd take it. Give me the give me the one. <laughs> give me the one because that at least allows Mitch McConnell to still be in control. Uh, of the agenda of the U.S. Senate. But I got to tell you, my gut tells me they're going to probably lose both. I hope I'm wrong, but and it's not really a prediction because it's mostly just a gut instinct. I mean, right now you could make an argument uh, that the Republicans could win both in very close elections. Republicans tend to do better in runoff elections, but this is not a normal runoff election because it's going to get so much attention because so much is running on the line. So much money is coming in from outside sources, almost all of it from outside of Georgia. Uh, And so I think this is this is not a situation that's very easily predicted. If you're a Republican looking for hope, the best thing I can tell you is it does appear as if it's very, very difficult for either of the Democratic candidates to get over 49 percent. And since there's only going to be two candidates, uh, that's a good sign. That is a good sign For the Republicans. And I will also say that I've been mildly uh, optimistic about the idea that there has been no collapsing of the Republican numbers because of all this election fraud bullshit on behalf of Trump. Because I, I did think there would be some semblance of backlash there, that there would be some people who would be just like, you know what, this is ridiculous. You know, Trump is shitting all over our own governor. He's shitting all over our own state. Uh, and and we're just not going to vote Republican because of it. There's not been an indication of that yet. I guess that could happen. I would have thought it would have happened already. But uh, it's going to be very close. Both of those elections are going to be very close and we'll cover it for you. Uh, When that happens in January. Now, uh, I've asked for since this is our last episode of 2020, uh, ask John anything questions. We've done this at least once or twice before. I got a lot of good questions. I'm not going to be able to get to nearly all of them in this particular episode, uh, but uh, we'll get to as many as we can in this episode. And then what we don't get into, uh, we'll do in the next episode, as we still have at least uh, three more scheduled to get us through the inauguration. Uh, so let's start with a question from Tommy. Tommy asks, <laughs> and this is a doozy. This is one I could probably talk about for, for uh, 30 minutes. What happened between you and Joe Walsh? Uh, for those of you who may recall, Joe Walsh was one of the uh, two Republicans who ran against Donald Trump in this particular primary election, at least uh, he did in Iowa. Uh, he was a former Republican congressman who has been on this show at least a couple times. I've interviewed him on different podcasts on multiple occasions. Uh, he was a big fan of mine. I was a fan of his, uh, even though, uh, weirdly, uh, he was very much on the Trump train back in uh, 2016. He was one of the very few that admitted that he was wrong. He became a talk radio host, which always makes me very suspicious because, you should never trust talk radio hosts, and, you know, as, as someone who has been in talk radio for a long time. I can assure you talk radio hosts are the least trustworthy people maybe on the planet. And so I, I come I came at Joe with suspicion, but I, I probably in retrospect was a bit too enamored by one, his narrative of having flipped away from Trump and also the fact that he really liked me. You know, I'll, I'll admit to that. That clearly had an impact. Uh, you know, I guess that makes me human. And so uh, he, he always claimed to be a big fan of mine. And he called me uh, in late 2019 and said, uh, John, um, I'm thinking about running for president uh, against Trump. What do you think? And, I, you know, I'm somebody who always gives my honest opinion, uh, you know, whether it's good, bad or indifferent advice. Uh, some people like that. Some people don't. And my first reaction to him was, Joe, uh, you're going to get crushed. Uh, this is a bad idea, Uh, unless you have an absolute boatload of money and unless you know you're going to get fired from your radio job and therefore you have nothing else to do and you're looking to create a new narrative, a new chapter, then don't do it. Well, he said to me and he made it very, very clear, I know I'm going to get fired from my talk radio job at Salem so uh, I really don't have that much to lose. This is and, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to be as fair as possible. Uh, he basically said this was a career move, that he thought that this would elevate his profile and that this might help him uh, career wise. I said, well, as long as you understand that you're going to get crushed and that there's no hope of actually being successful here, uh, you know, then if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. He also asked me whether or not I wanted to help him. With the campaign, in what role, we didn't know. We talked about a lot of different possibilities. We even had uh, a breakfast in Beverly Hills one time with him and his campaign manager. I was thoroughly unimpressed (laughs) with the whole situation. It was very obvious to me that this was effectively a publicity stunt because I actually took it seriously. I thought, okay, well, you know, he's my friend. I don't want him to be embarrassed. He might even be able to do some damage to Trump. If I can help, great i I gave him a lot of really good ideas. Uh, he thought they were really great ideas. They never did anything on them. Okay, fine. At a certain point, it became very, very difficult for uh, for us to even communicate because I started to get very frustrated about what the hell he was doing and disagreeing with some of the things he was doing. and uh, and sure enough, he you know, he basically you know went into isolation with regard to me. Uh, and and stopped even returning uh, my texts. Uh, maybe it was because he didn't like the advice I was giving him. I don't know. But we never, it turned out we never actually had any sort of formal relationship on the campaign. And it was obvious to me he was going down a, a wrong path. And I just stopped communicating. And then, sure enough, as I told him, I specifically told him, you're really idiotic for uh, putting all your eggs in Iowa because... <laughs> Iowa is not the place where anyone's going to make a stand against Donald Trump because there's not a secret ballot in Iowa. You're, You're forcing people to stand up against their neighbors, to stand up against the Trump cult and declare publicly that they're not part of the Trump cult. It's literally the worst place you could possibly do this. He did not take my advice. He put everything into Iowa and he got like one percent of the vote. And and that was it. And it was over. And uh, and I was like, OK, uh, fine. Well, then it became obvious that uh, Joe had lost his freaking marbles, because uh, if you may recall, it looked like Bernie Sanders was going to be the Democratic nominee. And he started to even say he would support Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, so basically what we have here is this isn't just a uh, career move. This is a, a full on minstrel show that Joe is being involved with here, which, by the way, is what what a lot of these former never Trump conservatives, they're not even conservatives, they're just virtue signalers to the left to so they can get on MSNBC and CNN. They get addicted to the love on Twitter and to the occasional TV appearance and that's their that's their source of relevance. And to me, it's very sad what's happened to Joe, especially now that covid hit, because now Joe is in favor of all sorts of things. I know he's not in favor of he may have even convinced himself he's in favor of, but are the most anti-conservative concepts on the planet. And um, so I I I made a mistake in even you know trying to help Joe and uh, and Joe's a fraud as far as I can tell. I mean, he's a total fraud. Uh, he's pretty good at it, and he convinced me for about 15 minutes, uh, and I regret ever uh, trying to help him, and it's sad. It's He's, he's emblematic of what has happened uh, to never-Trump conservatism, and he's also emblematic of how, the power that the left-wing media has to basically take people who um, had some semblance of principle— and let it all go because they're addicted to the attention and to the career benefits of getting left-wing media coverage and being, you know, being interviewed on television. It's a very intoxicating thing. I've done it a lot myself. I, I don't care about it. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't need that drug. But apparently, a lot of other people do. And and Joe is one of them. And you know, whether it saved his career, I don't know. But uh, I think very little of Joe Walsh uh, because of this uh, entire episode involving his presidential run and what has happened to him since. Next question Jim uh, asks, Is talk radio good or bad for the United States, freedom of press, speech? Or uh, is, uh, and we also ask, which ones, which talk radio hosts are most credible? Which ones do most harm? Did Trump create the recent talk radio monster or did talk radio? create Trump and MAGA um, again this is a topic I could talk about for a very very long period of time I've already alluded to the reality that I do not trust talk radio hosts uh, I think the talk radio started as a good thing uh, as a check on the mainstream news media and it has now turned into mostly a bad thing because now it is providing therapy for crazy people to believe shit that is not actually true you must be crazy When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? That's what talk radio now is. Now, unfortunately, much of the left-wing media has become the same thing. That's the biggest problem we have in media today, is that it's basically just where do you want to get your therapy? Where do you want to go to feel better about what you already wanted to believe? Facts be damned. Logic be damned. It doesn't matter. That's what makes this podcast unique. We don't do that. (laughs) We don't try to make anybody happy. (laughs) And most of the time we succeed. (laughs) The reality is we just tell it like we see it. And and so uh, I don't know uh, who what I would say is most credible. I, you know, I, I used to like Charlie Sykes. It was a never conservative, a never Trump conservative. But Charlie has gone completely into the to the dark side because, again, you in order to, to make this work professionally, you as a quote unquote never Trump conservative, you can't be conservative. You must tell the left what they want to hear. You must be part of a minstrel show. And so nobody, in my opinion, nobody on either side in conservative talk radio, whether it's on the pro-Trump side or the anti-Trump side, nobody has withstood this challenge without embarrassing themselves to some degree. Nobody. Some have handled it better than others, but nobody has done so 100 percent without exposing themselves as someone who is a grifter, to some degree, who is doing this purely out of economic motivations. And why is that? Well, part of it's because of the nature of the people who go into talk radio. They're not good people. But the biggest problem is the business model for talk radio broke. That's the biggest problem. And when the business model breaks, now you have to do all sorts of crazy things in order to juice the numbers so that you can still try to make money. And that's where Trump came in. Trump was effectively taking talk radio and putting it on steroids in 2016. It was the it was juicing it with the last bit of energy it could find in order to take a flaccid industry and try to pump it up. And and so there is there's both. Did the talk radio create Trump or did it go vice versa? I would say it's somewhere in in between But mostly, I would say that Trump saw a void that the right-wing media needed to fill. And he filled it, and they were happy for him to fill it, and they were happy to sell out to him. And it doesn't matter to them that conservatism died because of it. That's what happened. Trump killed it. It was already in deep trouble. But Trump killed conservatism and talk radio and Fox News Channel and and other right wing uh, online outlets all played a role because their business model was broken. And I predicted that back in 20 early 2016, that that's exactly what happened. And I've been 100 percent, in my view, vindicated on that. Uh, Mark asks, I've enjoyed your podcast and articles. I hope you can find a way to continue your podcast during the Biden administration. I don't know whether or not that's going to happen. It is possible. Uh you know, I am going to have a different podcast out on a totally different subject in the in the realm of crime that is going to be spectacular in 2021. So I hope you'll you'll pay attention to that. But I don't know whether or not there's a way to do it uh, via the political angles, uh, specifically with regard to the Biden administration. Who knows? I mean, uh, it, it's interesting. Yesterday, uh, I was interviewed both by Glenn Beck and by Bill O'Reilly. Uh, on their shows in the same day, which is very odd. I mean, 10 years ago, that would have been a, an amazing day, back when they were both at Fox News Channel. Uh, it, I don't know whether or not this was a, a coincidence, but it is possible that it's a it's a sign that the ice is thawing now that Donald Trump is getting ready to leave office and that maybe we might go to some back to some semblance of rationality in the conservative movement. I don't want to jump to that conclusion. Uh, But I guess that's theoretically possible. And that might open up some possibilities and opportunities. I don't know. I never say never. But uh, there's no imminent plan for that to happen. So please enjoy the last few episodes of the podcast. Um, Mark also asked, my question is whether Trump would have won had COVID-19 not occurred or was he done in in any event? Uh, I believe that uh, COVID absolutely uh, dramatically changed Uh, this election, but I don't know that it changed the outcome. Uh, The only time that I thought Donald Trump was going to win in 2020 was prior to COVID being what we now think of as COVID, and when Bernie Sanders looked like he was going to be the Democratic nominee. And uh, those two things happened, you know, almost (laughs) right on top of each other. Biden pulled out South Carolina just before COVID hit, which eliminated Trump's biggest asset, which was Bernie Sanders being the Democratic nominee, who is not even technically a member of the Democratic Party and refers to himself as a socialist. I believe Trump would have beaten Bernie Sanders. No COVID, Trump versus Sanders. And I believe Trump would have won that election. Correct. And it might not have been that close. It would not have been a blowout. But it might not have been all that close. It might have been very close to what it was in 2016. Uh, and uh, but then when you take away Sanders and you replace him with Biden and now you have the covid, which totally changes everything uh, and the media coverage of that and Trump being you know blamed for hundreds of thousands of deaths, which I think is highly un- uh, unfair and illogical, uh, and the economy then going to crap because of it, uh, that clearly ended any chance that Trump was going to win, which is why once Biden was the nominee and once it was clear that COVID was here to stay and that the economy was was decimated and it wasn't going to change before the election, I told you Trump was done. I mean, I, I wrote an article for Mediite in July saying it was over, the election was over, because there was no way to overcome COVID and Biden was not nearly as hated as Trump. And this was going to be a referendum on Trump and Trump was going to lose. And it all turned out almost exactly as I told you that it would. Uh, Brooks asks, in all seriousness, is there legitimately anyone Trump can blame but himself for failing to win re-election? I'm not 100 percent sure how to to take that. I mean, I, you know, I guess you're, if you're asking me what could Trump have done differently I mean, the, the, the die was cast a long time ago? I mean, I, I in my view, 2020 was effectively a redo of the 2016 election. And, it, and very few people really changed their minds. Most of it was just liberals going, oh, my God, I can't believe we let this happen in 2016. We're not going to let it happen again. And, you know, Trump actually got more votes in 2020, partially because it was a lot easier to vote in 2020 because of mail-in. But let's be clear. I mean, he is right. He got more votes than any other incumbent in history. It's just Biden got more, uh, partially because of the nature of the of the voting process, partially because of the intensity of the election. There was all sorts of logical reasons for that. Uh, I mean, look, it, to me, it's kind of weird to say Trump is to blame because Trump is Trump. Yeah, if Trump wasn't Donald Trump, he could have won. <laughs> But he is Donald Trump. I mean, and, and when you're that hated, you're going to lose. I mean, that's always been my my number one issue with regard to Trump politically and why I never would get on the Trump train, even if I agreed with him on most things, because you cannot govern uh, properly or hated by 52 to 55 percent of the American people. You cannot do it. And that's the price Trump ended up paying. And no one wants on the Trump side wants to acknowledge that, that that was why Biden got all his votes. It's not because people voted for Joe Biden. It's because they hated the guts of Donald Trump. Correct. If he wasn't so hated, he probably would have won. But then he wouldn't be Donald Trump. So that's the best I can answer that question. Bossman asks, if you contracted COVID-19, would you still refuse to wear a mask in public? Would you actually quarantine for 14 days? If I got uh, COVID, which, by the way, I don't know if I have or not. I've not been tested. I've not been sick uh, since this happened. I only wear a mask when absolutely required uh, or to make people feel comfortable. I will do that uh, in short, short snippets of time. But luckily, I don't think there's been one time where I've worn a mask for more than a few minutes at a time. My whole family does the same thing. None of us have been sick. We've lived pretty much as normally as we possibly can for the last, uh, really, pretty much, I'd say, seven or eight months. Uh, But if I did get it, I mean, first of all, I probably wouldn't be going out in public. But if I did, I would wear a mask. Sure, that would actually make some sense. Because one of my biggest concerns or objections to masking, other than it being mandated by the government, is that we're being told that asymptomatic people are presumed to have it and therefore must be mandated by the government to wear a mask when there's not any evidence that suggests that that's what's driving the pandemic. Dr. Fauci himself said that in January. But if I was sick and had symptoms and therefore would be contagious, sure, I got no problem wearing a mask then. Any logical person would do so. I still have a problem being mandated by the government to do it. As far as quarantine for 14 days, I probably wouldn't do it for 14 days because uh, I, I don't I, you know, I would I would do it until I was clearly without symptoms and uh, maybe wait a couple more days after that. So I don't know how many days it would be. But yeah, I mean, out of respect for other people, I would I would uh, quarantine to some degree. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what it is. Jacob asks, does it concern you at all that your wife and daughter support and love a clear cut racist in Donald Trump? Um, I was a bit concerned on election night to find out that my wife was far more of a Donald Trump supporter than I previously realized. That was that was concerning to me, <laughs> mostly because of the issue of, oh, my gosh, did I misread her that much? I mean, I've used her numerous times in this podcast as a one person focus group because I thought she was much more in the middle on Donald Trump. Sometimes, you know, I've referred to her as having the virus, which is a bad metaphor this particular year. But I used that metaphor well before covid that she has the Trump virus, but that it was contained. It was under control. She'd been at least partially vaccinated and that through me. I had partially vaccinated her to the Trump virus. My daughter, uh, Grace, That one is really a shocker because Grace has has never she's eight years old now. She's been on this podcast before. uh, She has never uh, really liked Donald Trump. Uh, In fact, our very first episode uh, on this podcast was, is Trump a good guy or a bad guy?
1: Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy?
0: And that's that was Grace a long time ago. That was about uh, when she was three or four years old. That was a sincere question she asked. And I had always told her basically that Trump was a bad guy. Well, I think Covid had a massive impact on both my wife and my daughter. And uh, the closing of Disneyland really had a massive impact on my eight-year-old daughter. So any anything she thought might uh, open up Disneyland, and she got it in her, her mind, although I did dissuade her from this notion because it's not accurate, that somehow if Trump won re-election, that Disneyland might have a better chance of reopening. Uh, and so I—, I I don't consider that they support a clear racist. I'm not sure that Donald Trump is a clear racist, by the way. I I don't think he is. I I don't see any evidence that he is. I think he's a horrible human being, a pathological liar. He's a con man. Uh, He's a selfish asshole. He's a moron. Uh, But I don't necessarily believe that he's a racist. Uh, So that part doesn't concern me. I'm more concerned by the fact that that I I misread uh, both of them. But I blame that on the COVID. And I understand why in desperation, especially here in California, when there's no place to go for help. You know, you, you, you turn to the army that you have, not the army that you wish you had. And in their minds, you know, we're under siege here in California. And Trump was the only hope. I tried to tell them Trump was not the only hope because in reality, if Trump had won reelection, we in California would have been locked down for another four years for sure. Because Gavin Newsom, our, our king governor, would never have allowed us to be free under a Trump presidency, if only for the purposes of punishing us. At least there's the theoretical possibility that Joe Biden could declare this thing finally over and Gavin Newsom would would be basically forced to say, okay, because the vast majority of his supporters would be go, oh, our guy, Joe Biden, just said it's over. They're never going to trust Trump to say that, but they'll trust Joe Biden. So that's the theory. We'll see whether or not it actually uh, transpires. Stephen asks, why should we keep the Electoral College? I'm a big believer in the Electoral College, and, and here's why. The Electoral College system is not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot better than the alternative. A lot of people, even liberals, this week with the Electoral College voting uh, officially to, to make Joe Biden the next president, have said that this system is corrupt and that it needs to be gotten rid of and it makes no sense. Um, that's just not true. Uh, and, and here's why it's not true. I'm a big believer in, okay. you have to game plan how things would be if something did not exist in order to evaluate their value. And if we did not have the Electoral College, let's go back to 2000. Since 2000 is the election in our lifetimes that everyone points to understandably. So because it was so incredibly close and it was the big battle in Florida and it was a shit show. And I was actually in Florida quite a bit. My father was living in Palm Beach at the time. And so I remember all that exceedingly well, even took part in some of the protests. Uh, So I was I was right there uh, in, in the whole Florida mess. And as bad as that was, it would have been far, far worse if not for the Electoral College, because we were only fighting in Florida. And so you had one state government, And the court system was able to determine, okay, which votes are legitimate, which votes are not, which recounts should happen, which should not, all under one uh, authority, which was the state of Florida. If you had to do that in an election that close in 50 different states in a population of well over 300 million people, God help us. It would have been massive chaos to a degree to which I don't think we could possibly comprehend. And people say, well, Al Gore won the popular vote. That's not true. Al Gore technically won the popular vote, uh, I believe by somewhere in the realm of four or 500,000 votes, which, by the way, sounds like a lot, but in a national election is not uh, an enormous amount. But that's not a legitimate number because, let's be clear, Bush voters had no incentive to show up in California, no incentive to show up in New York, in Illinois. There were there were huge numbers of people out there who would have voted differently, or would have voted when they did not, if we were doing this by popular vote. And so I don't buy the notion that uh, you know the margin of the popular vote would have anything close to the same. By the way, a lot of states stopped counting once they know who's going to win their state so so that even that number is not accurate. So my my point here is if you had an election that was nearly as close as twenty twenty and it would have been closer if, if it was done by popular vote, you were you are creating a recipe for chaos. Not just does it make a recount impossible because now you have to recount every vote in the country as opposed to every vote in a state where you're doing the Electoral College, but it goes even deeper than that because if you did not have the Electoral College, our population is centered in basically four or five places in the country. That's where all the campaigning would be done. That's where all the money would go to because obviously from an efficiency standpoint, you go where the people are. And so you would go to the, the metropolitan centers And the rural areas of the country would be completely ignored. And there would be vast, vast portions of this country that would be irrelevant, irrelevant in a presidential election. The Electoral College protects that. Now, I actually believe that the system should be changed. It drives me crazy that we have not all gone to the same system that Nebraska and Maine use. Nebraska and Maine use a system that uh, is, I believe, the best way to go. They provide two votes to the winner of their state based upon the two senators that represent each state. And then each congressional district within Nebraska and Maine are given one vote to go to the Electoral College. That's the way every state ought to do it. And there have been some proposals to try to get that done. But it's very, very difficult because each side is so suspicious of the other that no one wants to be the first to jump in. And because we don't have national elections for president, it has to be done on a statewide basis. So it's basically a stalemate. It's almost impossible to create enough trust where every state's going to do the same thing. Now, if you know some of the bigger states did it, I'm pretty sure everyone else or most states would probably follow suit. But who knows? There's a massive political problem there in getting everybody on the same page. But if by magic, if by magic every state did it like Maine and Nebraska, it would solve all the problems because you would have a mixture. You would have a mixture of where the cities would still be exceedingly important because they have the most congressional districts. But you would still have the smaller and the rural states being relevant. And interestingly, because I I did I did a study on this. I I can't believe I spent all this time to do this. But in 2020, I mean, 20 in 2000, the the famous Florida recount election. If you went by congressional district, I actually spent the time to do this. If you went by congressional district under the system of Maine and uh, Nebraska. I'm pretty sure it's been a long time since I looked at this. I believe you got the exact same number of electoral college votes as you did if you went state by state. That's how it worked out in 2000. And if we had had that system in in 2000, guess what? The whole Florida recount would have been basically irrelevant because you would only have been counting congressional districts. And the, you know, the number of of highly contested congressional districts is very small. And so And the the statewide vote in Florida would have only been worth two as opposed to all of them. So there's a lot of benefits to doing that. It's just almost impossible to get to. So that's why I'm in favor of the Electoral College and always will be, because the alternative is actually far, far worse and far more dangerous on a number of levels. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not it actually helps or hurts a Republican. I think the idea that the Electoral College helps a Republican is a bit of a myth. It's it's based upon this fluke of 2016. And the fluke happens because of Democratic complacency in the upper Midwest and because Donald Trump was the rare Republican to be able to appeal to white trash. Basically, that's what happened. I mean, you had you had a lot of Democratic white trash voters in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin who voted Republican and a lot of Democrats who stayed home in those states because they were complacent. If you if you lose Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, it's getting darn near impossible for a Republican to win the presidency. In fact you know, and we'll deal with this in the next episode because there's a question about, you know, my plan to save the GOP. Uh, You know, my fantasy world plan to save the GOP is to take the the 1.2 million voters in in Los Angeles County who voted for Donald Trump. Donald Trump got 1.2 million votes in Los Angeles County. 1.2 million voters who had no reason to show up because they knew he wasn't going to win California. 1.2 1.2 million votes is an incredible number of votes. That is more votes than Donald Trump got in almost every state in the entire country. Those people have zero representation. Zero. They have zero representation on a local level. Their votes don't matter on a presidential level. And if you took half of those people, and I'm talking, this is a fantasy world, right? This is, I'm not, this is not realistic. But if you took half of those people and the Republican Party figured out a way to incentivize 100,000 of them, to move to Arizona, to Texas, to Florida, to Georgia, and to North Carolina, right? <laughs> or, or maybe you figured figure out another 100,000 to move to Pennsylvania. You, you, you could figure out all sorts of ways to do the math. But if you took half those people, those 600,000 people, and you dispersed them, because many of them move them out of California anyway, because they can't stand what's happening with the lockdown. If, if you disperse those 600,000 Trump voters in an in, in a, in a equitable fashion, in a smart way to the right states, then all of a sudden Republicans could win the Electoral College. Now, that's never going to happen because no one has that kind of imagination and it would be difficult to do uh, from a logistical standpoint. But if that did happen, if you, if you took those 600,000 people, then you got a, a totally new ball ballgame. But, it, but in, in lieu of that, the, the actual the Electoral College actually very much benefits Democrats, at least under the current political climate climate. All right. Uh, we're only about uh, maybe a third of the way through uh, the Ask John Anything questions. We will uh, pick that up in our next episode, which will be the first Wednesday of 2021. There'll be, I'm sure, lots of news to review them. Uh, so make sure that you mark your calendar for our next episode. And then we will do episodes through the month of January, through the inauguration of Joe Biden. Uh, As is always the case, please subscribe, rate, review and share this uh, podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Have a very Merry Christmas and uh, try to have a Happy New Year. Don't be too sad that uh, 2020 is finally behind us and maybe 2021. It can't possibly suck as much as 2020, but uh, Happy New Year as well. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.